And it's a great segue into the sermon here, um, talking about people who um, have this calling from God and they, they put their trust and hope in Him and they believe in the Great Commission and, and then trials hit. And trials hit all of us in our lives and then we're tempted to wonder and to doubt and to say, oh, what is God doing here? And is this really what I'm supposed to be doing? And those times will come in our lives. So we're going to look at a passage in the Bible when John the Baptist had some doubts. So let's open to Luke 7, verses 18 to 22. Luke chapter 7. After last week, we see Jesus raising a man from the dead. But in the meantime, John has been thrown in prison for calling out Herod, rebuking him for adultery. And he's rotting in Herod's prison. And I can assure you, it's not like the Institute. It's a hole in the ground, literally. With no um, sanitation. You're sitting in your own filth, in darkness. And what a metaphor for how life can feel sometimes when we're enduring suffering. God feels distant and we can't find him. And that unshakable faith we had just days and weeks earlier can feel so elusive, like you're grasping at wind. The scriptures read that the disciples of John reported to him about all these things. Summoning two of his disciples, John sent them to the Lord saying, Are you the expected one? Or do we look for someone else? When the men came to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you to ask, Are you the expected one, or do we look for someone else? At that very time, he cured many people of diseases and afflictions and evil spirits, and he gave sight to many who were blind. And he answered and said to them, Go and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up. The poor have the gospel preached to them. Blessed is he who does not take offense at me. Seems like a strange way to comfort somebody rotting in prison. And we'll have our opportunities to comfort those who are suffering and confused about the plans of God. Last week we saw... Jesus' compassion and his amazing authority, even authority over death, as he raised a dead man and gave a widow back her only son. Beautiful, beautiful passage. Amazing passage. We take for granted Jesus' resurrection power. But no one's been able to do this the way Jesus has. And his own authority. Elijah and Elisha each raised someone from the dead on God's authority. Jesus did this in his own authority. But we also had to ask a difficult question last week, a really hard question, really the toughest question you'll ever have to ask as a believer or an unbeliever. As a believer or an unbeliever, nobody's immune from this question. Why so much evil and pain and suffering in the world? And if you're a Christian question gets even harder. Why would an all-powerful, all-knowing, all-loving God 
allow such pain and suffering and evil in the first place. So beautiful to see this man raised, but let's face it, if you and I were God, we wouldn't have let the man die in the first place. And we think that would be better and more loving. We proclaim a sovereign God, and by sovereign we mean completely in control of his creation and all of history. He's already written the story. Nothing comes to pass that he hasn't ordained, even pain and suffering and death. We're not used to the concept of sovereignty because we live in a democracy, and how dare anyone tell me what to do? Don't tread on me. Live free or die. But anyone living in a place where there's a monarchy or a dictatorship understand. Maybe those of you who've served in the military understand this a little better than the rest of us. You do what you're told by your superiors. And God is the ultimate superior. If he didn't create the universe and create us, we, there would, we wouldn't exist to even question his ways. And so one way to answer this question, and it's what we looked at last week, was who are we to question God? And that's the rebuke side of the coin. But there's a, a more tender side of the coin as well. And so we'll wrap this up. By no means will we speak exhaustively about this subject. It's riches, the depth of this well is uh, you'll never get to the bottom of this. So you understand why faith plays such an important role. We have an informed faith, and there are good answers to these questions. But it's also the kind of issue that when you ask a question, it seems to lead to another question. And then that answer leads to another question. And before you know it, it's like two in the morning. And you don't feel like you've gotten any further than when you started. And certainly, if you're enduring pain and suffering right now, the, the right answers can bring you hope and healing, but it may not take away the pain and the suffering. And so, we weep with you and... We walk gently with you, knowing our day will come as well. If life's going really good for you right now, God bless you. And, uh, but you know that the other shoe drops eventually. This is a fallen world, and it's falling. It's fallen, and it's falling. And so... We said last week that we have to deal with this question. You can't avoid it. It's uncomfortable. It leads to conflict. Because people want to answer this question in different ways. If life is going well, why, why would I want to subject myself to having to deal with this? Because when the pain comes, when the trial comes, you need to have the answers ahead of time. You need to have the answers ahead of time. And so we need to talk about these things as they come up in Scripture. And this morning, we see John the Baptist, a man of great faith, 
he too tempted to doubt. And Jesus said, what about John? The greatest man who ever lived. So if the greatest man who ever lived, apart from Jesus Christ, could doubt, don't you think you might have doubts as well? Here's a man who was born to preach and to baptize, Luke 3, 3, and he came into all the district around the Jordan preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. This was a turn or burn kind of preacher, fiery preacher, pull no punches. And you've got to have unshakable faith to be able to preach that way. No fear of man. Luke 3, 7, so he began saying to the crowds who were going out to be baptized by him, the, the who's who of Israel, the Pharisees and the scribes, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Chastising them for their um, either not getting baptized or getting baptized under false pretenses. It's the same man who recognized Jesus as the Messiah, as the chosen one, as the Christ. Now, while the people were in a state of expectation and all were wondering in their hearts about John as to whether he was the Christ, John answered and said to them all, As for me, I baptize you with water, but one is coming who is mightier than I, and I'm not fit to untie the thong of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Wow, that's, that's preaching. And he, and he knew who the one was. John 1.27, again, familiar words. It is he who comes after me, the thong of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. The next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And he baptized Jesus, and they heard the voice from heaven, This is my beloved Son, and the Holy Spirit descending in the image of like a dove. He knew this was the chosen one. The Holy Spirit revealed this to him, and he had confidence in this proclamation until he's rotting in Herod's prison, and some disciples come and report some of the miracles Jesus is doing, and even hearing those miracles, he asks them to go back to Jesus and inquire, are you the expected one? Are you the chosen one? Are you Messiah? Or do we look for someone else? Wow, what happened? What happened? What changed? Did the truth change? No. Did, did Jesus change? No. What changed? Circumstances. Difficult circumstances. There's no rebuke here for John. When they report to Jesus, he doesn't rebuke John. This is natural for us. It's our natural state of being to doubt when things get difficult. Somehow we get it in our minds that life should turn out a certain way. 
And if we follow God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength, then it really should turn out a certain way. And so what causes us to doubt God? Let's be honest this morning. You've already done it. I've done it. It won't be the last time you did it either. So let's get to the root of what causes us to doubt God so we can turn from that doubt. Number one, circumstances beyond our control. He's omnipotent. We're not. But we'd like to be. And we have a good idea about how we would make the world run if we were omnipotent. And when the world doesn't run that way, then we doubt the one who does have that omnipotence. And with the internet now and cable news, we find out every day that the world isn't running the way we would like it to run. And we, we become overwhelmed. And then life hits us hard where we're living. Something happens to us or a family member or our job or something precious to us is taken and we're tempted to doubt God. Or we have incomplete information. We don't know the future. We're anxious about the future. We don't know what's going to happen. And so we fill in the blanks with what we think the future should be. And when it doesn't turn out that way, we doubt God. We're always talking about where do you think you'll be in five years and ten years, right? And it's okay to plan that way, but let's face it, does it ever turn out that way? No. You know, I've got this plan that all of my kids, they're going to walk with the Lord and they're going to marry beautiful Christian people and they're going to have beautiful, healthy grandchildren and they're, they're all going to be uh, a joy, like almost sinless, and they're going to come over all the time and forget the in-laws, they're going to come to our house all the time, except when we're tired, and then they're going to go. And it's, I got it all planned out. Don't you have it all planned out? Yeah, you got to be kidding. But we do it anyways. We fill in the blanks with the future because we're not omniscient. Only God is omniscient. He knows the future. And when the future turns out in ways that we would say, that's evil, Now we doubt God. Unmet expectations. I I deserve this. I deserve If I follow God, I should deserve a life that looks like this. If I sign up to be a missionary, it should turn out like this. And then it doesn't. And like John, we, we doubt. And all of that kind of coalesces under the heading of evil and suffering, if everything turned out exactly the way we want, with no evil and suffering, we would think there'd be no cause to doubt. And so, we talked about the problem of evil. This, this problem, theologians phrase it this way, if God is all-powerful, and all-knowing and all-loving, then why is there so much evil and pain and suffering? And we said that the atheist 
says it's proof that there isn't a God. Because if there really was this all-powerful, all-loving, all-knowing God, there wouldn't be all this evil. And so they say, there's got to be no God. And yet, the fact that the atheist recognizes that there's evil in the world presupposes a God. If there's no God, then you can't label anything evil. It just is what it is. It's just random chance. It's just evolution. It's just the way things are. And so they get upset that there's evil and there's got to be somebody responsible for the evil so they're upset with this God that they say doesn't exist. That great definition of an atheist. Someone who says he doesn't believe in God and hates him with all his guts. It's it's kind of what that whole movie God is Not Dead was predicated on. So classical Arminianism attempts to solve the problem of evil by diminishing God's omnipotence or his omniscience. God doesn't know the future, perhaps. The open theists say he doesn't know the future. Oh, he's better at guessing than you are because he's so wise and he's got more experience. But our choices wouldn't be real choices if the future's already been determined. And so we struggle with this concept because we're finite beings who can't know the future, trying to comprehend a God who lives outside of time. He's not bound by time. He lives in a constant state of now, past, present, and future. He's the great I am. Not I was, not I will be. I, he just is. And I once wasn't. I am now, and I'm not sure what I will be. But God doesn't have this existence. Praise God that in his humanity as Jesus Christ, he can commiserate with us. He came and understood what we go through each day. What a loving God to condescend to our level that way. And what a great and loving God that he communicates us in his word in such a way that we can understand him. Even though sometimes he'll paint himself to look more human than he really is. We call that anthropomorphism. To make God seem more human so we can relate to him. And he'll say things like, oh, now I know you really love me to Abraham when he put Isaac on the altar. But God knew all along. But how does an infinite God speak to finite human beings in ways we can understand? Who has to do the tweaking? He's, he's got to condescend down to our level. The deficiencies with us. He doesn't have a communication problem. He understands it completely, thoroughly, and comprehensively. He's got to reveal himself to us in such a way that we can understand him. But don't think for a second you'll ever wrap your mind around him. If you did, he wouldn't be God anymore. And so we're going to run into these problems that uh, are unsolvable by human means. And so we trust the Bible will reveal to us, even when it reveals things that leave us scratching our head and going, how does that work? It does, because the Bible says so. 
other Armenians will diminish God's omnipotence. Uh, he wasn't able to prevent that evil for various reasons. He didn't want to interfere with our free will. So he couldn't intervene. So, well, that doesn't let God off the hook morally because he created a universe in which there was the chance that man would commit evil and that the other created beings, the angels, would create evil. So just don't create anything and just stay a trinity. But that's not our reality. God did create. And so if you think you're letting God off the hook by diminishing his omnipotence, you haven't. Now you just have a God that is powerless to help you. And powerless to make good on his promises. Are you really secure in your salvation if God doesn't know the future and isn't all-powerful? He's just a more impressive version of us. And I'm not putting my faith in anybody on this earth. You've been let down one too many times. And you've done the letting down. So don't try to shrink God down to our size so we can comprehend him. The fact of the matter is we are not omnipotent and we are not omniscient. But we do fancy ourselves to be wise and loving. I'm a good person. I'm a wise person. I'm a loving person. And here is where the problem of evil, where the rubber really hits the road. Here's where we have our problem. I don't think God's being loving. Okay, I admit he's all-powerful and all-knowing, but come on. Rape and torture and genocide. Famine. And when they hit home personally, then it gets really difficult. You can always turn off the news. And you can choose to walk through life with the La, 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 la. I'm not listening to anyone's problems. But you'll have your own problems eventually. God will not be mocked. We are surrounded by evil, natural evil, famine, earthquakes, tsunamis, supernatural evil, demonic spirits that roam the earth, antagonizing Mankind in propping up this fallen world system that the devil temporarily has sway over. And moral evil. You don't have to look any farther than the mirror to see moral evil. And so we begin to doubt God's character and his wisdom and his love because we think we know better what love should look like and what wisdom looks like. Now let's think about that for a second. Questioning God's love. What are the two great commandments? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And the Bible says all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So we have failed at loving. Us who have failed royally at loving, we're going to question God's love. 
And again, when we're going through difficult circumstances, we do this and we don't really think through those terrible circumstances, losing a loved one, pain, suffering, incurable disease, chronic pain. But we cannot judge God's love. We love inadequately and our view of love is inadequate to judge God. Perhaps our definition of love is just wrong. Perhaps we are judging God's plan and character with incomplete information. It's not just perhaps. The answer is yes. That is exactly what's going on. We are not all wise, all loving, and good. So let's just go through a little exercise this morning. Do you fancy yourself a good person? Do we have parents in the room? Are you a good parent? Do you love your children? Would you ever knowingly inflict harm on your child? No, a good parent would never do that. Really, have you ever spanked your child? You willingly inflicted pain on your child. Have you ever taken your child for vaccinations? Well, I know some of you don't, so <laughs> let's not go there. Okay, so problem of evil, we can handle vaccinations. That'll split a church, right? So don't ask, don't tell. When I was uh, a boy, I had to go for allergy shots growing up in Stockton and San Joaquin Valley. Horrible allergies. And all they had back then was Benadryl. So it was either sneeze uncontrollably, uh, itchy throat, and be able to stay awake for class but not concentrate or take a Benadryl and fall asleep or get nosebleeds that wouldn't stop. And so the only other remedy were these allergy shots. And, oh, this, this allergist, uh, this doctor's office was the scariest, most depressing place on the face of the earth. Children screaming in the parking lot. Because you'd go every week and you knew what was coming. No, mommy, no, don't make me, please, you know. And, you know, and then the one that pulls the parent's heart out. If you loved me, why would you do this to me? And there were no doors in the, the rooms. You would just walk in and you could just hear them give the shot and the kids screaming and then next. And they call your name out and nobody wanted to be next. And they made you wait 20 minutes afterwards to see if you had a really bad reaction. And so there's kids still crying and I hated going and to add an insult to injury, you had to make your co-pay before you went. So you're like, we're paying money for this. Like, and the results don't come right away. They keep telling you, you know, after months and months and months of this, you'll see improvement. Inflicting pain and suffering. And it doesn't make sense. No good seems to come from it. And we tell our children, trust me, trust me. Know, before the spanking. You'll thank me for this someday. <laughs> and that's a small scale. The gap between our child's knowledge and our knowledge 
is pretty big. But how much more the gap between the children of God and His knowledge? Infinite gap. And He's saying the same thing to us. Trust me. Trust me. I have a plan in all this. All things work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to His purposes. Romans 8.28 All things, even this, even this. I'm using even that. Right? Proverbs 3.12 For whom the Lord loves, He reproves, even as a father corrects the son in whom He delights. And Hebrews reiterates this. That as a father disciplines his children, so does the Lord discipline us who He loves. So there may be reasons for suffering that we can't comprehend, but the Bible's revealed some of those reasons. Paul puts it this way. This suffering, no matter how bad it is in the here and now, is momentary. Light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. The the imagery is that of of scales. See, all we see is the suffering. And we put that on the scale and we're like, wow, that is really heavy suffering. Like putting some lead shot on scales and there's nothing on the other side as far as we're concerned because what's on the other side is spiritual And so we think the scales are doing this. But this beautiful imagery, this eternal weight of glory, it's like an anvil fell out of the sky on the other side of the scales. Boom! And what seems so heavy is is light. Momentary. As we were, were singing, things strangely grow dim when we think about the hope and the glory of heaven. For a guy like Paul to be able to say this. Remember his whole chronicle of how many times he was beaten? and Left for dead multiple times. Shipwrecked, bitten by snakes. On and on it goes. No Advil back then either. So, the chronic pain he must have been in. And he called it momentary light affliction compared to the eternal weight of glory. Job questioned God's wisdom, a man who suffered more than anyone with the exception of Christ. In fact, prefiguring Christ's ultimate suffering. He didn't question God's love as much as he questioned God's wisdom. Look, I know I can't contend with the Almighty, but I think if you just let me ask you a few questions... Nobody should have to suffer the way I'm suffering. And his friends, quote-unquote friends, had said, Job, you must have some hidden sin. That could be the only reason God would allow someone to suffer in this way. But at the beginning of the book of Job, God lets us have information Job doesn't have. In fact, God chose Job because of his righteousness, because of his faithfulness, to boast in the face of his enemy, Satan. Look at my man Job. Oh, he just blesses your name because you let him have everything. Okay. 
let's let him endure trials. And you'll see that his faithfulness is rooted and grounded in my character, in God's character. And so something much bigger than Job was at stake. But Job couldn't see that. Who could blame him? Losing his, his family and all of his servants, all of his wealth, and then losing his physical health. We would cry out too, this seems unloving. I, I don't see God's wisdom in this. It's unfair or it's unwise. But God says this to Job in Job 40. The Lord spoke to Job out of the storm. Brace yourself like a man. I will question you. And you shall answer me. Would you discredit my justice? Would you condemn me to justify yourself? In other words, in order to vindicate yourself that this isn't fair what's happening to you, you would condemn God to make yourself feel better about your complaint. See, if you cry out to God in the wrong way, if you cry out to God in a way that is sinful, you're impugning His character. You're saying, look God, you don't know what you're doing. Look, you're not loving. And in the moment, that might make you feel better in some way. But you would impugn God's character for temporary relief? What are you left with? Living in a world filled with evil, with no God who is good, no God who is wise, no God who is loving, Evil, then, is purposeless. But if God is all-powerful, all-knowing, all-good, which He is, and all-loving, then there is a purpose in evil and pain and suffering. And we could trust God for those purposes. He reveals some of them to us, but we, we can't get the whole picture. When we get to glory, maybe He'll fill in all the blanks and it'll be even more reason to glorify Him, or maybe we just won't care anymore because we'll be in His presence. It'll all be in the past. Here's how to cry out to God. And God wants us to cry out to Him in our suffering. David cried out, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? God hasn't forgotten him, but you can cry out in that way, because that's what it seems like. How long will you hide your face from me? How long shall I take counsel in my soul? That's kind of like a euphemism for depression, you know, when you, when you really turn in. And you're looking for answers inside because you can't find any of the answers outside. Having sorrow in my heart all the day, how long will my enemy be exalted over me? But that's not where David leaves it. He finds his solace in the steadfast truth of God's character. He ends the psalm this way, But I have trusted in your Loving kindness. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. That's what we do when we find ourselves embroiled in the problem of evil. Cry out to God in your humanity and find your solace in His divinity. Don't diminish His divinity. So how does Jesus teach us to deal with our doubts in the face of evil? What does he say to John? They, they say, uh, 
hey, John's in prison. He wants to know if you're the expected one. And Jesus says, go tell him this. Give him this report. After he just did a whole bunch of miracles. Tell him that the blind receive sight, which is a quote from the Old Testament. Anything in all caps up here is a quote from the Old Testament. I read a lot of these quotes in the opening psalm this morning. The lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he who does not take offense at me. Blessed is he who accepts these things. Doesn't take offense at the way God's plan is unfolding. John had incomplete information about the Messiah. He lost sight of the second advent. He was expecting Jesus to come and destroy all of Israel's enemies and Messiah would sit on the throne of David and reign and usher in a time of unparalleled peace and prosperity and that is coming and we can't wait for Jesus to return. But at his first advent, he would preach the gospel and his people would reject him. It wasn't what they were expecting. So when things weren't going according to plan, the way John expected, and John was enduring great hardship, that's when he doubted. And how does Jesus minister to his friend? Not in ways you and I would expect. You know, not a lot of like, hey, it's going to be okay, I know you're really suffering there, you know, it's going to be okay. It's not going to be okay, he gets his head chopped off and served on a silver platter. But it's okay in the sense that everything is going according to plan. Here's the scriptures. Here's what's happening. Just like the scriptures said it would. It's just not happening in the way you thought it would. That doesn't change truth. So the way to help people lovingly and compassionately is to eventually get Back to the scriptures. Get back to solid truth. God is God. He's omnipotent. He's all-knowing. And he's still all-loving and good. He just demonstrates his love in different ways than we do. Remember that the greatest evil in the world actually led to the greatest good. What's the greatest evil ever perpetrated in the history of the world? The death of God's Son on the cross. Who committed that? Oh, I know you want to say Rome or the Jews. God did. God ordained and decided that would happen. The evil was committed by Rome and the Jews. It's our evil that put him on the cross. But God brought about the greatest good through evil. And we think there's nothing good that would come from evil. Jesus suffered on the cross more than any human being has ever suffered or will suffer. He took the entire sins of the world on himself and experienced the full wrath of God unleashed on that sin. Oh, the, the mockery and the shame and the scourging and the false trial and the slapping and all of that was bad. But many have endured that kind of pain and suffering. 
Many of our beloved brothers and sisters around the world experience the same. But no one had the full weight and force of God's wrath poured out on them while they held the sins of the world on their shoulders. And so Hebrews 12 says, Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him, joy set before him, where's the joy in that? The glory after the cross. Like Philippians 2 tells us, after the cross, God exalted him and gave him the name above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess he is Lord. First comes the suffering, then comes the glory. Beloved, if you are suffering right now and you know Christ Jesus, the glory is coming after the momentary light affliction. For God so loved the world that he gave. And we're like, yeah, he gave this wonderful gift. Yeah, but think about it from Jesus' perspective. He gave, and everything that that means had to come down from the glory of heaven and live as a man and be born into a lowly family in, a no, in Nowheresville under the scrutiny and speculation that his mom was a fornicator, born in a feed trough, got Herod trying to wipe you out, and on and on and on it goes. For God so loved that he did that? Wait a minute, that's not how I would love. You see, we have an inadequate definition of love. That, that, John 3.16 doesn't make sense from a human perspective. For God so loved that he would do that to his own son? Yeah. Because something greater would come from it. Something that only could come through those means. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners. Christ died for us. Doesn't bring God much glory if he dies for a bunch of nice people. That's the expectation. That's what Paul says in Romans 5, 7. Oh, a good man, quote unquote good man, might die for another good, good guy. I might jump on the grenade for my buddy in the foxhole. But would you jump on the grenade the way Jesus did for a bunch of filthy, rotten sinners? Uh-uh. I don't even like giving money to to beggars unless I know they have a good story. You know, that's how how tight-fisted I could be with grace. God lavishes us with grace. I need to hear a good backstory. So they don't put me in charge of the deacon's fund. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, here's here's Paul telling us, what if something bigger is going on here? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for the vessels of mercy, that's you and I, which he has prepared beforehand for glory? What if God is allowing evil and pain and suffering in this world because it displays his glory in ways that could never have been displayed if there was no evil, pain, and suffering? Maybe there is no problem of evil. 
Maybe we made up the problem. Because we don't see what possibly good could come from suffering. We, we want a suffering-free life. But what if God is using suffering for things like turning us into Jesus? Producing faith and patience and endurance and perseverance. And these things can only happen through pain and suffering. I don't grow much if there's no trials in my life. I don't want the trials. But I'm learning to say, like James, count it all joy, brethren, when you encounter various trials. That's how we grow. That's how our faith gets tested. That's where we see the impurities that we need to repent of. And we know that there's a God who cares deeply for us in all of this. In the same way you care for your children when you allow a measured amount of pain into their life, so much more so does an all-loving God care for you when you are going through suffering. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that He may exalt you at the proper time. At the proper time. Casting all your anxiety on Him because He cares for you. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. You think Jesus was tempted to doubt in God's plans, in the Father's plans? Oh no, Jesus never doubted. Read the Garden of Gethsemane. Never doubted in God's goodness. Never doubted in God's faithfulness. Never doubted in the Father's love for Him. But doubted that Maybe there's another way we could accomplish this. If there's any other way, Father, let this cup pass from me. But, thy will be done, not my own. That's our example. Let me close with this quote from, it's my Christmas present, present from, you know, what does a pastor's wife get for her husband? Bible devotion materials. Uh, from one of my favorite authors, Paul David Tripp, a whole morning devotion book on God's grace. Boy, do I need to be reminded of that every day. He writes, God hasn't just forgiven you, praise him that he has, but he has also called you to a brand new way of living. He has called you to live by faith. Now here's the rub. Faith is not normal for us. Faith is frankly a counterintuitive way for us to live. Doubt is quite natural for us. Wondering what God is doing is natural. What are you doing, right? You've, you've thought it. You've probably said it out loud. It's normal to think your life is harder than that of others. Envying the life of someone else is natural. Wishing life were easier and that you had more control is natural. It's typical for you and me to try to figure out the future. Worry is natural. Fear is natural. Wanting to give up is natural. It's natural to wonder if all of your good deeds make a difference in the end. It's normal to be occasionally haunted by the question of whether what you have staked your entire life on is really true. But faith is unnatural. Faith is supernatural. This means that faith isn't something you can conjure up inside yourself. Faith comes to you as a gift of God's grace. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. 
Ephesians 2.8. Not only is your salvation a gift of God, but the faith to embrace it is his gift as well. But here is what you need to understand. God not only gives you the grace to believe for your salvation, but he also works to enable you to live by faith. If you are living by faith, you know that you have been visited by powerful transforming grace because that way of living just isn't normal. If your way of living is no longer based on what your eyes can see and your mind can understand, but on God's presence, God's promises, God's principles, and God's provision, it is because God has given you faith and he has crafted faith in you. Could it be that all of those things that come your way that confuse you and that you would have never chosen for yourself are actually God's tools to build your faith? By progressive transforming grace, he is enabling you to live the brand new life he calls all of his children to live, the Godward life for which you were created. You don't have to hide in guilt when weak faith gets you off the path because your hope in life isn't your faithfulness, but his. So you can run in weakness and once again seek his strength. And you can know that in zealous grace, he will not leave his handiwork until faith fully rules your heart unchallenged. He always gives freely what we need in order to do what he has called us to do. Wonderful words. Father, thank you for this faith when we are tempted to doubt in your goodness and your omnipotence and your omniscience, fill our hearts and minds with your word and your promises. May we marvel at your character and may we trust that you are doing wonderful things that we cannot see yet through our suffering. May it all be momentary light affliction compared to the eternal weight of glory waiting for us when we see you face to face. In your name we pray, Lord Jesus. Amen.